Are you a victim crippled by the minotaur in the labyrinth of your mind? Or will you fight your biggest challenges like Theseus and fulfill your potential? My name is Zulfakar and welcome to the Minotaur's Maze. Welcome to the Minotaur's Maze. My guest today is Alexander Cortez, who is a personal trainer, writer, dancer, and solo entrepreneur. He pro provides advice on, on training, fitness, uh, and nutrition to help people get leaner, stronger, and smarter. His prolific writing has amassed uh, a 90,000 strong following on Twitter, a massive email list, and a private community for men. Alexander, thank you for being here and welcome. Thank you for having me on. Now, there's, so much, there's so much um, advice on fitness out there. And, and obviously, mm -hmm. I've been following you for, for some time now. And what I get from you is that 90 to 95%, probably more of the advice on fitness is just wrong. What's, mm -hmm. what's happened? You know, why is there such a difference of opinion? And, and why is there so much wrong advice out there? I would, I would frame the problem as a philosophical problem, actually, which requires, as I like to say, backing up so many steps and really re-examining the perspectives and premises of how we approach fitness and health at large. Um, what does that mean? You know, that, that sounds very smart. What does that mean? The problem is, is fundamentally the way people think about their health. So something, let's say, like fat loss. I want to lose body fat. Very common desire for most people. They want to lose body fat. All right, so how are we going to go about accomplishing that? If you follow, let's just say, mainstream fitness narrative slash mindset slash perspective, your first order of action will probably be that you need to find a diet that will somehow deliver fat loss. And you have to do the diet, and hopefully the diet works, and maybe it will restrict carbohydrates, maybe it will restrict um, processed foods, maybe it will restrict meat, maybe... There'll be some form of restriction. There'll be some things you can eat, cannot eat, and you get the outcome you want. And that's not incorrect, but undergoing that process, you haven't actually learned anything about how fat loss actually works on a very basic level at all. And maybe you really don't want to know. Maybe you're, maybe you're not interested in knowing, but that lack of intellectual both curiosity and just sheer lack of knowledge in regards to the process that you're trying to undertake, that's going to eventually undermine you. In the years I've been training clients, which is, I've been a personal trainer now for going on 11 years. One of the big points I always make when I would first get a new client, so I'm intaking a person, I'm assessing them, and you know, we're doing an interview, is that I want them to learn things from a first principle basis. So when we're talking about, let's say, lifting weights, it's not about the implements, not about whether the barbell is superior to the dumbbell, whether the dumbbells are better than machines, or, or machines bad, is this good? I'm like, it's not about good or bad, it's about context. Do you know why you're lifting weights in the first place? Um, well, what do you mean? I'm like, do you, do you realize that you live in a gravity-based environment, your body needs muscle to move, if I drop my phone right now, I drop anything, it goes straight down towards the ground, so gravity is this omniscient force that shapes our ability to locomote, and our, our bodily motion 
from from the time we're born to the time we die. Like, do you, like, do you understand that? Most people they never they never thought of that. Like, okay, like, yeah, gravity gravity exists, obviously. All right. So when you're lifting anything, you are challenging yourself with gravity. More gravity or less gravity? Everything comes down to that again. That basic principle. Uh, uh, oh wow, that's a very different way of looking at you know the problem. You know, looking at the process. You know, same thing for fat loss. You know, do you understand fundamentally that your body needs food to not die? You know, I'd always make that point. Like, you need food to not die. Yes, you're, yeah, I do. Okay. Do you understand that your body itself is made out of what you eat? And people think about, like, oh, yeah, that, that's true. This, you know, this is not, you know, this is not, not conjecture. Everything that you intake, what you consume, you become. Okay. Would paying attention to the quality of what you consume influence your health in some way like does that seem reasonable to you it's like yeah that's that seems logical right um so i, I you know so i'd have all these lines these sort of philosophical like questions you know uh, lines of thinking i'd go on and then over time the person their mindset would fundamentally change because rather than approaching their health as a problem they have to sort of beat down their health is now something that's sort of like an enjoyable puzzle it's a source of knowledge about themselves that they get to learn about and it's very accessible that way and how you frame the problem is going to influence how you approach the problem, learn about the problem. Uh, but like this, you know, having this conversation, you know, hopefully with people listening are like, oh, well, that makes sense. Like it's a different way of looking at things. But that's what's lacking in most fitness as a whole. The majority of fitness advice that's mainstream is extremely prescriptive. So the way that people wish there was a pill for fat loss or a pill for exercise, they want a very binary do this, do this, don't do that kind of prescription for something like working out, something like going to the gym, something like, what, what, what's the best routine? Uh, I don't know. How many days a week do you have to train? I could train five days. Okay, are you going to train five days or you, you think you would? You know, like is, or, or are you actually going to train three days consistently? Like, what are you going to consistently do? Three days, okay. Have you ever trained before? No. Okay. Now, I have like 20 other questions I could ask the person. But again, like this becomes context. The best given the best given course of action for any given situation is contextually dependent upon the situation itself. There's all these parameters you have to assess. You know, if you're really going to do things to the utmost effectiveness, you know, if if you just want generic advice, I mean, that's very easy to find. But what do most people inevitably struggle with? They try this, they try that, they try this, they try that. Nothing works that well. Why is it not working? Is there something wrong with them? So it's always this very frustrating, uh, no man's land position to be in, I think, for most people. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you started that question, well, answering that question with, you know, talking about philosophy. And most people would never think about philosophy when they're talking about uh, training and fitness. So what, what, made, and what made you think about philosophy in terms of fitness and training, was it uh, um, because of the accident that you had with your dancing career and, and you started to think about this more or was it something you were always kind of aware of and, and went down that ro road? Uh, you know, taking, you know, taking the philosophical or open-minded perspective or you know, a different thinking perspective, I don't know that I could attribute to any one area. I was, I was very much a reader as a kid. Yeah, I still am. Yeah, you know, I mean, if I had to like sort of point back to a moment in time, I don't know that I could really find one per se. Mm -hmm. I was always very influenced by. I mean, if I could really pick out an influence, like I was very much a comic book reader uh, as an adolescent, and Batman was my favorite character. 
and Batman, you know, part of his you know, appeal was that he trained both his mind and his body. And, you know, it was very, those, those two things operate on an, an infinite loop. You know, what, you know, one leads to the other. You can't separate them. Um, and then, you know, getting into, let's say, very generically, Eastern philosophy, Oriental philosophy. Um, I mean, it's like very level 101, level 50 stuff. You know, I'm not going to go in-depth, but if you get into like the very basic principles of Buddhism, or even like the very basic principles of like Ayurvedic yoga philosophy, Hinduism, and this idea that the body exists in a material state, but also your body you know, puts you, in, you know, into the realm of the mind, and your relationship between the two is going to influence the quality of your life as a whole. That was very influential. And I realized when I started training people that people's relationship with their health and their physical body was very much their relationship for the rest of their life. Again, you, you couldn't separate the two. It was, it was very – I've never really encountered it where somebody was in a very poor state of physical health while also having excellent mental health, while also having a very satisfying life. I've never really seen that. I've seen people where, you know, maybe to some level they're able to accept that, you know, their health is not priority for them. But when you're physically suffering, you're in pain, or you just you're slow, you're low energy, um, you're comprom you're making compromises in, on your sleep, on your recovery, on your well-being. When you're making compromises that way, that has an inevit inevitable carryover, bleed-over effect to all the other types of decisions you make. If you know, one of the things I've, like one of the critical decisions, um, mistakes people often make early on, let's say with careers, once you make an agreement with yourself that it's okay for you to be tired all the time, that you're going to accept being, I'm, I'm going to accept not getting enough sleep, I'm going to accept that I need to, I need coffee to function, I'm going to accept that this is just how it is, and you know, I can't do anything about it because I need to work X amount, and I'm going to let that, you know, let that aspect of my health decline. Once you make that agreement, then everything else is on the table and fair game to be compromised. It's like, all right, like right, I'm not going to sleep enough. All right, I'm also not going to eat well because in the, you know, one leads to the other. I'm also not going to exercise because we're, you don't have the energy. Oh, then I'm also going to have to accept that my body fat's going to increase. Oh, well, I guess that's going to happen too as a result. So you, know, you have these second, third, even fourth order effects pile up, but where did it start? It started with you deciding that it was okay that you were not going to get enough sleep. So once I saw that relationship at play so much with people where health is bad, life is bad. Health is bad, life is bad. Health is bad, life is bad. Um, how do you then go about solving that? Because the traditional prescriptive parameters for fitness where here's your exercise, here's your diet, like that's going to address that problem. But the, the actual problem itself is everywhere else. So we can, you know, we can carve out a section of it and take sort of the, the square out of the, uh, you know, out of the triangle that way. Like, oh, well, I fixed this problem. Yeah, but that problem also has 10 other problems that are, are related to it. Everything has its sort of chain of consequence. You know, so, like, what do you want to solve? Do you want to solve the one thing, or do you want to solve all of it at once? You know, so what's, what's the root to all these issues? Yeah, and the root inevitably is people's psychology. It's their mindset. It's how they approach life as a whole and how they think about things in general, you know, both generally and specifically. So then you have to approach it from a mental standpoint. And then once you do that, then you realize the physical, the physical stuff's easy. It's very easy to give prescriptions that way. Here's a good workout. Do push-ups and chest press and dips. There, there's your chest workout. It's good. It's good. Thumbs up. That doesn't solve your lack of that doesn't solve your lack of motivation. It doesn't solve your lack of self-esteem. It doesn't solve your lack of confidence. It doesn't solve that you are uncertain going to the gym. Like I, there, it doesn't address any of the actual problems. I've just given you a list of exercises. So yeah, you know, for people that are very self-motivated, self-driven. Maybe all they need is a prescription, but that's not most people. 
if it was, Western society would not have a you know seventy eighty percent you know obesity you know uh, rate of being um or we're not overweight. What is it now? I think it's about eighty percent of people in like the United States at least are overweight. So yeah, three out of four people you know are have excess body fat. So like clearly it's not a prescription problem. You know, it's it's a psychological social problem. So so when you work with clients, then do you work on the psychological aspect straight away, or, or do you just give them the the fitness program and work on the psychology? So say for example, somebody's really stuck right now. They they've got a bad mm-hmm. diet, they've got bad health, but they've got very low self esteem, low confidence. Um, you know, business isn't going well, their job isn't going well because of the coronavirus. They're just absolutely stuck right now and they don't know which way to move. In in terms of practical steps, what's the first thing they should be doing to get themselves out of that hole? Well, this is the paradoxical (laughs) irony, you could say. When your life and your health are out of control, I would argue the best thing you can do for yourself is to very simply start a consistent exercise routine. Not just for the sake of exercise, but to have something to anchor habitual construction on. So if I can get you doing one thing each day that's good for you, yeah, that's a very key point. If I can get you doing one thing each day, whether it be 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, where that hour of time is you doing something that is good for your health, mentally and physically, now we have something that we can build upon. If you don't have that, though, you know, and life is in disarray, where life is chaotic, then you have no psychological substrate where you can put a foundation of you know, better thinking on it at all. You don't. You don't have anything. You know, that's why I think it's a, it's a very old historical idea, um, an ancient idea that exercise, and I should say not exercise, but that health is sort of a vector for truth. If you know what's healthy for you, then you know what's good for you. If you don't know what's healthy for you and you're not doing anything to make yourself healthy, your ability to discern and filter between good and bad is going to be fundamentally altered. You're going to lack that filter. You're, you're not going to have it. So you'll, that will lead to poor decision-making. So if I can get you doing something very basic, let's say like 100 push-ups a day, like just okay, or even 50, you know, 50, 100, let's say, let's, let's say 100. I want you to do 100 push-ups every day. Okay, just that. Like don't have a complaint, just do that thing. There's going to be soreness, there's going to be fatigue, perhaps you get some muscle growth from it. But I'm entraining the brain, I'm entraining your mind to do something with consistency, which is probably lacking in most areas of your life. And from that consistency, we can then add to it. You know, add what? Maybe it's more exercise, maybe it's just better habits. But in doing that one thing every day, inevitably, you know, your hours will have to adjust themselves to accommodate for it. And that's going to bring some order to your existence. And what makes people feel safe? Certainty, order, stability, security. What's what's a very easy way to go about that? Train at the same time every day, 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 5 p.m., whatever, whichever time. Same same time every day. Do the same things. Okay, now we have some stability. What else can we make more stable? So that gives you a starting point. Brilliant. And you've touched upon it there. So you know, obviously, you, you've touched upon the the obesity numbers and and the issues, but. The foundational problems is the lack of self-esteem and, and, and the lack of confidence. So, in your opinion, why do you think it's not just the Western? It's 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 a global thing. You know, mm-hmm. why has self-esteem suffered so much? You know, what is the root cause for such poor self-esteem and confidence and mindset in modern day society? You know what? That's a really good question. That's a that's a very good question. 
if you take like the, it's very popular now to like quote Western society this Western society that like it is obviously um, and it can certainly be said that Western society has a psychological spiritual malaise to it where people they feel uncertainty about the future um, you know both on a broad level you know societal level both on an individual level and anytime you're uncertain about the future your certainty in yourself is probably going to be less than what you would want it to be uh, you know one of the hallmarks of a thriving and prosperous society is that people feel positive about the future and, and typically you know that usually leads to an increase in self-esteem um, self-confidence yeah but why is self-esteem at an all-time low I would this is very multi-factor multifactorial I would attribute it to you know, on a very broad level that because society across the world, you know, not just in the United States or Western Europe, but even in India, even in Southeast Asia, technology has changed the way society communicates so rapidly. And whereas 50 years ago, 100 years ago, even 20 years ago, your frame of comparison to what was a good life was vast, vastly more limited. So if you were growing up in I don't know, let's say 1980s India. I, I've lived in India for a period of time, not in the 80s, but you're growing up in, it's 1980s, it's India, it's India, you're living in Mumbai, or I think it was Bombay then, still. You're living in Bombay. You could watch probably American movies, you know, maybe some television shows, but you're not on the phone looking at how people live in America. You know, the same way that people you know, in America were not on the phone and able to look up places in India. But everywhere in the world today, because of technology, you have the ability right at your fingertips where you can see how other people live and you can see extreme wealth. You can see extreme decadence. You can see extreme levels of success. And most of the cultural figures that we esteem, idolize, look up to today, they're billionaires, they're superstar level athletes, global level athletes. You know, there, there's, there's a lot of them now, you know, more than there were in the past. So whereas, 50 years ago, your definition of what a successful life was was limited to your geographic location. Now, you almost have a global definition. You can, if you're a young man, you can see older men who have cars. You know, let's, just, you know, let's assume they're successful, but they have cars, they have women, they're fit, they're living this incredible lifestyle that is so far beyond you know, what you live right now. How, how, do you how do you possibly get there? How do you get there? So I, I think that plays a major role, definitely. Yeah, certainly in the da dating market, the same thing for a lot of people. I have a lot of younger followers, uh, men and women, and that's something that like they really struggle with. Yeah, obviously, women, it's a very easy thing. They can get on Instagram. They can look up a 1,000 girls that are hotter than them. If you're a guy, you can get on Instagram. You can get on YouTube. You can see a million guys that are taller, fitter, more muscular, more ripped than you are. Oh, man, like I, I'm never going to look like that. Gee, you feel bad about yourself now so on and so forth, um, even economically. You know, like globalization has been good, certainly, you could argue for you know, general economic commerce, global prosperity. You know, there's more money flowing through the system than ever before, but it's also become more competitive. You know, Silicon Valley is super competitive. I know, you know India, yes, because I have, a lot of, I have a lot of Indian followers, India is hyper-competitive. The job market, the education market, you know, what college you into, test scores, I, like people live and die by that. You know, 40 years ago, Again, it was smaller. You, you were competing with less people. Now everything is on a global stage in some level or another. Um, so I, you know, I think like the self-esteem crisis 
a lot of it, I, I mean, that's, if I could, if I contribute to one like root cause, it's trying to struggle against a system that you feel so small in, and to dominate a global system, you have to make yourself massive. That, you know, that seems to be the path for people. You know, how else do you do it? Uh, and there's some rejection of that now. I do see this tonal shift of people wanting to live you know, more lo like go local is the term. Going local, I want to live like a traditional life. I want to have a farm. I, I want to sort of get away from this like very intersected technolo technological by civilization, which is very understandable. So you're seeing a, a pushback against it. But at the same time, there's millions, billions of people that they're they're living in the thick of it. They're living in the thick of it, and they're scraping to get by. And in the United States, if you want to be in the 1%, uh, you have to make a quarter million dollars a year, which is that's a lot of money. <laughs> Uh, you know, it, you know, that's a lot of money anywhere in the world. If, you, if you're in New York, you have to make a basically a half million dollars a year. You know, and that's not even to be competitive. That's just to sort of just keep up with the standard of like what a successful person is. That's not ultra successful. That's just being, you know, mildly esteemable. Like, oh, you're doing, you're doing pretty good. Yeah. But there's someone else who's making 10 million a year or they're a billionaire. Um, yeah. And then even countries that didn't have billionaires before now have billionaires. You know, so I get like more money through the system. It becomes a more competitive system. But you know, how do people feel good about life that way? You know, when they realize you know how much they're going to have to climb. So, I mean, I, I don't have a I don't have a meta point to that, but I, I think that's where a lot of like the root. I I, I would say that's where like if, if that is a, a very sort of like deeply rooted part of the root issue, and then you can start stacking things on top of that, like you know wealth inequality, economic inequality, classism. Um, you could talk about you know the the food industry. You know, obviously, people being overweight, uh, an obesogenic environment. Yeah, but if you want to go very, very deep, I, I would say it's that. Okay, and and so it's. I mean, obviously, there's a lot to unpack in there, but you know, you talked mm. about people maybe feeling stuck in 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 the system. So, um, I mean, I've heard a lot of people saying you know they want to get off the grid, they want to go there, there, but it's 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 not practical for most people. So, what no. else can people do to? maybe not come out of the system, but use the system to their advantage to create a life for themselves, which works for them. Because I think you've probably done that better than most people. So, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about your journey and, and then what advice you had for other people to do the, uh, something similar. That, that's also a good question. Um, so I guess at this point I could qualify myself as being a, an entrepreneur, entre entrepreneurial at least. What I saw when I was growing up, this is very much 1990s. That's when I came of age. So from you know, I was born in '89, so millennial. Um, 1990s, at least in the United States, was a tone of like general prosperity. There was this assumption that the future would keep getting better and better and better, and that's what I remember as a kid. Yeah, you know, life, life, life seemed good. There was no uncertainty at all. That changed somewhat with 9/11, but at the same time, those wars, those conflicts, they were they were far away. So the day-to-day -day life was not affected in the United States. I never thought about economics. Never thought about the system being rigged against anybody. I never, I didn't question the narrative at all because there was no reason to. You know why? There, why, why would I? You know, I was young, but life seemed good. The thing that changed my mindset fundamentally. It was a few things, but the first one was going uh, to school in San Francisco. So I went to San Francisco State University, which is, you know, San Francisco has always been a nexus of like far, like liberal, you know, left-wing, this, you know, thought, ideology. And I was exposed to a lot of thinking there that 
seemed to be logically bankrupt. Um, I remember, like, let's say, distinctly an experience where this was 2008, I want to say. It was the, so the Great Recession in the United States, the Global Recession. Um, the county where I grew up in, in California, it was something that, like, one in four to almost one in three people lost their homes, which was a lot of people. You know, literally everybody knew someone who'd lost their home. So I saw this this radical shaking. I saw this sort of radical uh, breakdown, like the system in regards to having a house was not an asset. You know, having a job is not that reliable. I saw my parents end up losing their home, and that made me question the narrative. Where like, okay, like, yeah, you know, again, I, I never thought about this before. I'm like, you know, the whole time growing up, you know, the advice we got as a kid, like, go to college, get a good job, buy a house, that didn't work out well for a lot of people. You know, why did it not work out well? I remember being in San Francisco, and the state was bankrupt. California had a $50 billion budget deficit, and it did, you know, because I realized that California does not manage its money well at all. It's a very rich state, but it just has very bureaucratically corrupt government. And there was protests at the schools that, uh, that the state was stealing money from like the school system, and there was budget cuts to the state university system. And... The state wasn't stealing money, it just didn't manage money well at all. And it had this massive shortfall. And you know, being exposed to that kind of like left wing ideology, I'm like, it didn't it didn't make sense to me. Or like, you know, their, their answer like the answers that I was getting from like, you know, these crowds and these protests were like, Well, we need we need communism. We need to like seize the wealth. I'm like, what 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 wealth? Like how, how are you gonna it, it didn't make sense. I'm like, how, how are you how are you gonna actually effectively systematically orchestrate that? Like what's gonna actually change? And the, but there were no good answers. It was just it was just rhetoric. It was these demands that we made. Um, and I saw the beginnings of what would become like social justice uh, warrior thinking or wokeism, as what it's called now. But I saw the beginnings of that, you know, being in these classes where everything was very genderfied, everything was based on race, correct race theory. And it, none of it made sense. I'm like, uh, you know, stuff like, you know, the concept of like uh, like racism. You know, like every if you're not anti-racist, then you're racist. But if you are being anti-racist, that meant you're racist before. Like I've, you know, I grew up very, I grew up in a very mixed race family. Like I've, I've never in my life thought about that. That's how the world works. Like that's a very oppressive way to view, literally everything. You know, just it frames everything this power oppressor model. Um, you know, so like there was that thinking, and then you know, the, and then like the economic stuff. Like after my parents lost their home, and I saw teachers get fired, I saw people let go. I saw, I saw lots of people with what were supposedly stable jobs that end up not having jobs, and. Throughout my 20s, throughout the time of college and from years after, I would travel around the United States, and I was in economically depressed areas. I was in parts of like the southern United States where people's jobs had been legitimately shipped to China. I'm like, oh, I, that really is a thing. Oh, geez. Um, yeah, I was in places where you know coal plants had been shut down because of economic policy. I was in places where the quality of life had declined because wages had gone down. Because of various trade deals, and I, you know, I realize the world is very interconnected this way, you know. But the rhetoric that I've been led to believe growing up, which was sort of this neoliberal world model that everything is always better for everybody, I'm like, no, there's actually there's lots of people hurting. Like clearly, there are be, there are people being left out of the system. And then at the same time, you know, I'm I'm, so I'm, I'm I'm having I'm feeling all these experiences. I'm sort of like trying to rearrange you know my thought processes. I'm like, okay, how do I make sense of the world now? Because I guess what I would call like sort of the neoliberal economic model, this, this clearly doesn't work for lots of people. People are left behind economically, socially. This 
belief that the future is automatically getting better. For everyone, this is not true. This is not true at all. Um, I remember the, I think it was the TARP Act in like 2008-2009. So the banks go bankrupt, Lehman Brothers, you know, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars in assets, and the government just buys all the debt. And then like that was that was a weird thing at the time. Like how did how did the US government buy eight hundred billion dollars of debt? Like that, that's a staggering sum of money to think about, right? Like eight hundred billion dollars. Like how do you just make that go away? You know, like growing up, I, I grew up very blue collar. I'm like if you had even a little bit of debt, it's like, oh man, you owe money. But apparently if you have enough debt, it it can just go away. I'm like Okay, like how how's that work? So then I started reading the Federal Reserve System, and then that was that's its own rabbit hole. But uh, okay, so the U.S. has this Federal Reserve. It's actually not part of the U.S. government, but it basically prints dollars for the U.S. government. Like, like well, where, where is this money coming from? You know, since it, yeah, to my to my knowledge, you know, before this, I had assumed that money was based on something real. I was like, oh, it's just based on the it's based on the presumption that inflation will increase forever. And that we'll always have debt. That's doesn't seem like it makes sense. I, I thought I had thought actually dollars were based on gold. They're not, obviously. I'm like that. How how did that happen? And then I sort of went into like the history of banking in the United States as like in central banking and international banking. I'm like, wow, this, this seems kind of rigged. This system. But yeah, you know, like if you telling people that's like it's a rigged system. Okay, well, what are you going to do about it, right? Like that's always the big question. Um, so I had all these questions about the world that I, I didn't have nice answers for, and the answers I got were all either that it's a conspiracy theory or, you know, like, what, what are you going to do about it? Like, you, okay, like, oh, well, this is how it works. I'm like, I didn't like any of the answers I got. And it really, it, disincent, it disincentivized me from ever wanting to have a, a real job because that didn't seem like a stable situation at all. Mm -hmm. It didn't. But you know, the way I frame this many times for you know, people to get into sort of this, whatever you want to call it, you know, the rabbit hole of having the veal pulled back, you take the red pill, whatever. Okay, you find out what's not true. But finding out something that is untrue does not reveal to you the path of truth that you should take. I could very readily point out something that's false. You know, but being negative doesn't necessarily tell you, like, okay, well, now you know it's not real. What do you do now? Like, there, there weren't any answers that way. Um, so I got into personal training because my bachelor's degree, which is a bachelor's of arts in dance performance choreography, I realized very quickly in college was absolutely worthless. So, so um, why, why, yeah, why did you pick that degree? Let's just stop that. I don't mean to interrupt, but why did you pick oh, that no, not at, all. at the time? Do you remember why you picked it? Did you have uh, ambition with that degree? So, you know, you, you've gone through this process of asking these questions, but where was the direction of your life going in your mind before you had all of these discoveries? Well, yeah, here's the thing. I know this is very disjointed. I, I never was a goal setter from a young age that way. So I, I was I was rebellious, not in the sense that I was trying to do bad things, but I, I hated the system. I, I hated school. Yeah, you know, I, I would not I was I I wouldn't consider myself a dumb person, but I hated school. Every year in school from kindergarten up to the time I graduated was an aching slog that felt like it passed it felt like it was like trying to pour cement through an hourglass um and i i just i don't like systems i have a I have very strong um i have a very adverse reaction being told what to do by anybody so i didn't want to have a real job mm -hmm. i couldn't picture having what most people deem a real job mm -hmm. i didn't like waking up i didn't like having to get dressed for something you know seeing especially during the 1990s early 2000s corporate culture was very dominating 
if you want to get rich, well, go into finance and you wear a suit and tie and you show up and you're going to manage financial instruments. And I, I, I could not imagine my life doing that. Um, so I was in high school at the time and I was being told, like, you got to go to college. Everyone has to go to college. You don't, if you don't go to college, you never make money. You'll be a failure. Only stupid people don't go to college. You're not stupid. Okay. I'm gonna go. I have to go to college. And this was like a fight with my parents about this. And so I was very adamant. Like, I don't want to go to college. Well, what are you going to do? Who, who's ever going to hire you for a job? It's like, ah, oh, damn it. All right. So at the time, I had just gotten into dancing. This was like sophomore year of high school. And I was really enjoying dance. Um, not because anyone told me to. I just I just loved it this myself. There was no mimetic replication of seeing a person and wanting to imitate them. I just discovered it. I'm like, I'm doing this purely for me. And I looked up whether colleges had dance degrees, and they did, actually. It turned out you could get a degree in dance, which is worthless, but you can. <laughs> so that became what I decided I was going to do. Like, all right, I'll get a dance degree. There, I'll go to college, I'll get a dance degree. Now, that ended up not working out because I got, I got very injured while I was in college. I had some pretty bad injuries. Um, so, like, my, the, you know, the dream of being a professional dancer got destroyed pretty fast. Uh, but that was that was the plan at the time. I thought I'd go to college, get a dance degree, and then I'll I'll dance professionally, and I can make my own schedule. I can be an artist, and that seems fun. Okay. Um, that ended up not yeah. So that that to answer that question. Hopefully that kind of did. Yeah, no, no. So okay, so yeah, that's that happened. Then you've obviously gone through this process of questioning the system. You don't like the system. So what then did you do to climb out of that system to to build to yourself where you are now? And, and, you know, what are some of the actionable, actionable takeaways other people can do that are feeling stuck in a similar situation? Yes. Well, let, me, let me see if I can make this actually pragmatically useful. Um, so I'm in college. I get the dance degree. I realize that I have no job future at all. I have no job skills. The one thing I knew I was into was I really like to work out. I love being in the gym. I love fitness. And I looked it up, and as it turned out, you can get certified as a personal trainer in a weekend. So like a two-day workshop, you're certified. And personal training typically starts at $15 an hour, like you know, and which is more than minimum wage. So it was the only thing I could find that would pay me more than minimum wage that I was qualified to do. So that's what I started doing. And as it turned out, I, I was never passionate about fitness, but I do love to teach. So it was very enjoyable in that aspect. But I realized a few years into it, probably within the first year, I'm like, I don't want to work hourly the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. like, I, I don't want to do that. Um, and, and I and let me I mean let me preface like I had no education, any kind of inkling of like how to think like a business person. Like the yeah you know, very basic things like leveraging your time, creating systems, you know, uh, getting paid more beyond than the hour in which you work. You know, like not getting paid by the hour. Like that was. You know, like you know, as I learned these things during my early twenties, they were revelations. You know, my narrative growing up was that you get a job, you get paid good, and I, I just sort of presumed that a rich people must get paid a lot per hour. Like that's how I thought it worked. I, you know, what, what, how, how do people even get rich? I really didn't know, right? Like I had no, I had no clue. But I remember this was like 2010. I read the Four Hour Work Week, Tim Ferriss, and that was the first book I read. Where I'm like, oh wow, like you could. You could make something, in this case, like a business slash website, and you can get paid, but you're not working, which is so basic, right? But again, at the time, I was like, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> um, so then I was like, all right, I'm like, but I don't know anything that I could get paid for for not working that I could make. So I, I kept on doing fitness, and 
what happened was over a period of time is I realized that if you create a large enough skill set skill skill set skill set slash knowledge base, you're able to solve expensive problems for people, painful problems. You can then leverage that skill base and that knowledge into something that it can provide services and products that you don't necessarily need to be present for. I mean, this is what business is, is it not? So then when I started researching different industries, things like finance, um, you, know, th- you know, the service industry, you know, even you know, things like products, I'm like, oh, like, okay, this makes more sense. Now you look at the world, it's like, I bought a phone. Someone designed this phone, someone came up with the idea, but they're not, they're not literally making it, someone else is making it. So then I started to think, okay, with fitness, you know, how could I use fitness as a path towards financial freedom entrepreneurship? And I had this moment, like, if I do this long enough, and at that point it had been about four years, if I do this long enough where I can, again, get that skill-based knowledge base to offer people packaged solutions you know, for their fitness problems, I could create a business out of that where my time is now leveraged. So I, mean, I, could, I could make more money. I could have that financial freedom that I wanted. And that's what I did. So that was around 2013. And, I mean, it took, obviously, time where he was learning how to write. So it was, it was writing online. I worked for other people. I saw what worked and what didn't. I studied you know, various companies, various individuals. And it was right around 2014, 15, where I started to see the rise of sort of like these solo entrepreneurs, where people, where they had these skill sets, they had, they had done a somewhat conventional path, but they had taken that knowledge, packaged it, bundled it, and they were teaching other people. And that gave them that leverage. So I'm like, okay, so if I, if I just keep building the knowledge base, I can get that leverage. And social media made this easy, obviously, because social media democratizes the sharing of knowledge and information, which is huge for people. You have this infinite ability now where you, you can teach an unlimited number of people at once. There's no limit to how many people I can, you know, I can have as clients or I can have as followers. There's no, there's no limit to how many people can learn from me. And that, that's probably what changed the game. Or right around 2016, which was my last year working for someone else, I realized that, you know what, you have enough knowledge, you've been, doing, you've been training now a long enough time, long period of time, where you can put yourself into that position of building a business. Um, but, you know, but the knowledge and the skill had to come first. You know, I mean, so for people who are stuck right now, like, you know, to sort of address the question, like, it's, it's okay to be stuck, and it's also okay to work a regular job. Yeah, I know there's oftentimes a sort of, like, anti-ethical attitude of, like, you know, uh, don't work a regular job, don't go to college, don't do this, don't do that. I'm like, if you can create something from a young age where you're suddenly leveraging your time getting paid, that's fantastic. But to understand how systems work and to have a business mindset, I would suggest getting educated and working for a business or working for someone else that has a business, whether it be a large one or a small one. You need that base of skills. You know, so if, you know, for most people, you're going to have, it could be quite a few years where you are selling time for money. But as the value of your time and the value of your work you know, rises, hopefully, you know, linearly than exponentially, then you'll eventually get to a point where you can create that life for yourself that's more custom designed. But yeah, like, well, yeah, how much time would that take? I would say that would take reasonably five, ten years. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, you know, well, how do you do you know, that? That could be daunting. But I'm like, okay, like, that might seem daunting. But if you have the vision and you have the willingness to learn and you, you have the time, we all have the time, then what's stopping you? You know, what's what's going to stop you is your motivation for actually achieving that. Brilliant. And obviously, part of your journey has been, you know, the the, the prolific uh, writing. So it's not just the fitness; it's the writing, and it's the mm-hmm. general advice about, you know, what it is to be a man, um, and also the history lessons. I mean, I've got a, 
I'm going to show you. I've got a diary entry here, so I'm just going to read something <laughs> out. And it's uh, yeah, yeah. it's a diary entry that I put in on the 19th of October in 2018. And it's from mm. one of your emails um, dated 30th of June 2018. And I'm just going to read out the extract. Uh, it's, Unlike working with men, where I have an underlying fury that a man has allowed himself to become a fallen, fat caricature of his masculine potential and has abandoned the heroism of his youth in exchange for a beer gut and resembling 10 pounds of soy stuffed into 51 pounds bag and now needs another man to unfuck and get him to basic standards of strength that he himself should be perfectly capable if he remotely cared about not dishonoring his family. Um, and I think that email finished up with men. You should feel yeah. that because if this was 10,000 BC, you'd be functionally fucking useless and dead. And you sure as hell would not be reproducing because who would want your sad genetics? No one, because they are soy. Do your goddamn push-ups. Now, <laughs> that is obviously not a very conventional style of writing, but that no. inspires... Uh, and motivates a group of people and it infuriates another group of people. Now, at the time, you know, two years ago, uh, you know, I've, I have had a pretty good life. Like I've had good role models. I've had good parents. I've had good education. You know, I became a lawyer. Um, so I've gone through the system and, you know, I'm, I'm making decent money. But every day I'm waking up feeling depressed or miserable and, you know, life's not working and I'm reading your emails and these are the things that are inspiring me and, 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 and helping me get through. So first, you know, I mean, you have kind of touched upon it, but this is such a widespread thing where men are suffering from self-esteem. And I didn't know what it was. Um, and you know, I'm still working through that process right now. But why does your style of writing inspire some and infuriate others? And, and is it deliberate or did you develop that over time as something that was working? Um, or is it just you just putting out whatever comes in your mind and, and seeing what happens? Yeah, it was deliberate in the sense that I've always had this very keen instinct where I hate people lying to themselves. So, yeah, I, I mean, I can't claim perhaps even levels level of success that merits that, but I was always that way from a very young age where I didn't like self-deception. And I saw that people, adults, certainly when I was younger, they engage in that all the time. They make these compromises for their health, their happiness, their general satisfaction of their life as a whole. And they live that way, and they arrive at a place where they're, they are unhappy with the outcome, but that's not accidental. The modern environment that we live in, it allows for an extreme margin of safety. And safety makes people comfortable, but also makes them lazy. All the years I've, I've trained clients, especially working with men, I realize that men really don't respond to... I don't want to say don't respond to kindness, since there is a time and place for kindness. But men don't respond to niceness. Telling a man who's suffering with himself fundamentally that it's okay, you, know, you need self-love. Like, you don't, you don't need self-love, and it's not okay. Like, you need some level of self-immolation, self-destruction. You, you have to hate yourself enough to be able to love yourself later. So most of what vexes men today, it's, it's negative emotions. It's not overabundance of positivity. It's, it's negative emotions. It's negative because of how you lived. So rather than you know absolve you of that and say, well, you know, let's let's rechange the definition of masculinity, 
no, you shouldn't be absolved of that at all. You have to face that and account for that and reconcile with it. You are the way you are because of how you lived. That, that's why you're like this. All right. So you have some shit that you are very unhappy with. I never lacked physical standards. That's the one thing I've never lacked. You know, I, from a very young age, I always kept myself physically fit. You know, like that's, because that's the one thing you have really, that's really the one area that I would argue you have true direct control of. You know, other aspects of life, you're going to have to operate within certain systems. I, I can't control money. I can't control government. I can't control politics. I can control my health. I have control over my actions. I have control over what goes into my mouth. I have control over how I sleep and use my time. I have control over all those things. So your domain of control is actually quite intensive that way. But many people have abandoned that. A lot of men have abandoned that. They just don't think about it. And you'll pay for not thinking about it. All those things that you're unaware of, you will pay a cost for them. Uh, you know, so that's where, like, I was, you know, when writing that, even, like, there was a certain fury, which I think probably helped my male clients, where, oh, I'm struggling, I'm struggling with motivation. I'm like, struggling with motivation, what does that mean? You know, even, even the language that you say, the sort of this pop psychology you could talk, what does that mean? I'm not motivated. Well, okay, what does it mean? What's your definition of motivated? You know, what does motivated look like to you? you know, give me an example. Like, you know, really, really dissect it for me. Uh, like, people, they don't have good answers. Yeah, it's just a feeling they lack. Like, okay, like, how do you envision yourself? You know, what do you see when you look in the mirror? You know, for, for myself, I was always very vain, which I, I would argue as an asset, since I, I wanted to look heroic. I didn't want to look like the kind of person who didn't care about themselves. And it's very, it was very obvious to me from a young age, which I think for most people, that how you look is what you get judged by. So why would you not want to, this, this that alone, why would you not to utilize that to your advantage? Even if you're not an athlete. Yeah, and then, obviously, working with clients it becomes very obvious. Oh, you don't care what you look like. You don't care what you weigh. You don't care about your health. Well, what else are you apathetic towards? Because I, I guarantee you it's more than just your health. It's probably your relationships, probably with people not you know, mistreating you. If you don't treat yourself right, I guarantee you you're not letting other people treat you right as well. Um, you know, those things carry over. There's always, there's always correspondence. You can never get away from correspondence in this universe. So, the, you know, the writing style... <laughs> I, I never, I, I never hired a writing coach. I never, in, in college, I never took a single class on writing. Last time I probably wrote an essay was maybe junior year of high, senior year of high school. But I found out early on that I have sort of a God-given ability to write, at least in at least writing a lot. I can write very easy. I can put down a thousand words of paper. Um, and I would wrote, yeah, I would, or I wrote. Anything that I write is always very within the moment. This is whatever I'm feeling at the time. And most of it stems from conversations I have with individuals, with people, uh, whether they be clients or just you know men seeking out advice, you know, or women, you know, so on and so forth. So there's a certain kind of rawness to it, yeah, but at the same time, it's very polarizing. It's very polarizing. It is very black and white. Uh, but yeah, I attribute that where it's you know, I refuse to compromise. You know, like well, the reason I live my life today as I live it, where I have, you know, I've basically I've, I've internet money, like that you know, was what I call. It. I have internet money. I have you know get paid while you sleep money. I live my life my own terms. I, I live in Thailand. My schedule is my schedule. You know, who I talk to is who I speak with. Even the group I made, you know, the, you know, the, the Asia tribe group, it's, it's men that I know I'm going to get along with. I don't work with anyone that I don't like. So yeah, I had all these, I had all these very hard and fast lines I drew across my life as I suddenly got older, where rather than, you know, try to accommodate, I just decided to put up a boundary. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. 
but I will do this. Yeah, what you say no to matters far more than what you say yes to. Far, far, far more. So I try to narrow my life down to, you know, what are the things that I will in fact say yes to all the time? You know, when you do that, it might seem like you're creating this narrow existence, but in reality, you have a life of infinite potential. You know, it, life, I am very happy with my life. I, I love how I live. I love, I love everyone in my life. Um, but what did it take to do that? Well, yeah, it, it took all these, you know, it took, it took making these, I want to say bargains, but it took falling in Crete. I'm like, I will do this, I will do that. That's not what I'm about. I'm about this. So, like, really define the parameters by which you want to live. You know, but then uh, that also requires, you know, like, well, what are you doing for work? You know, what, you know, what are you doing for money? You know, where, you know, where are you going to live? You know, what's your relationship with your family and your friends? So you have to draw your existence into ever greater levels of clarity. You know, one of the sort of rules I, I guess I'd say I live by is that you never want ambiguity to persist in a relationship for too long. You know, what is ambiguity? Ambiguity is a lack of clarity. You know, so you don't want ambiguous business relationships. You don't want ambiguous financial relationships. You don't want ambiguous romantic relationships. You don't want you, you do not want ambiguous friendships. You want maximal clarity in all aspects, you know, especially in regards to the people that you associate with, and most of all in regards to yourself. Yeah, again, the principle of correspondence, correspondence, it's always there. Brilliant. Um, um, so obviously, you know, you've built up a, a quite a massive following on, on, on Twitter now. You know, great, you know, you love your life, but it still comes with challenges with a lot of trolls and a lot of, and especially because you're so polarizing, you get the angry attacks now. Mm-hmm. Having following you for a while, it suggests that you just don't give a crap about any of it. Is so. How firstly, how do you deal with all of that kind of attention, both the positive and the negative? But secondly, how do you develop that attitude of literally don't give a f- fuck about anything? Well, yeah. In one aspect, you always want to give a fuck about yourself. So, like, yeah, what should you care about most in the world? It's you. Um, if you have a relationship with yourself that way, then your relationships with other people, they're probably going to be pretty good. What I realized about human beings, and this is referencing to Rene Girard, um, the principle of medics, is that people are always going to imitate and copy each other. They're always going to imitate and copy, and then inversely, they're always going to have an adverse reaction to things that are dislike themselves. So those things that we tend to hate the most are the things that we... You know, have the greatest distance from being able to relate to. Now, what does that mean for being like online, having trolls, having critics? Anyone that has a strong message that establishes a position, your position will occupy a spectrum. Most spectrums are polar. They have a north and a south and east and west. They have this and this and somewhere in the middle. By way of having any kind of position, you will have people who are for you and people who are against you. You, know, you have to accept that as a reality. If you are going to be more discouraged by the people who are against you there than who are for you, well, a few things could happen. You'll quit, you'll go crazy, or you'll start internalizing those criticisms. Most people play status games. They compete for attention, they compete for approval, and they are driven by the desire to be liked by the crowd. And depending upon the culture you're from, your predilection for conformity you know, could be more or less. You know, some cultures are very conformist and have very high levels of expectation. Some don't, but in no circumstance are you ever completely freed from expectations. You know, people are always going to judge you by them. You might live your life in your own terms, but someone's still going to judge you for it. It's going to happen. 
you know, ha now having that brought to light and realizing that when people have been critical of me or, you know, whether they're attacking or trolling or just outright venom, I wish you die, you know, kind of, you know, messages. I've gotten those so many times, oh. you know, you deserve, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny when it happens, like, wow, this person's really mad, right? Um, but here's the thing, like, I could get into the meta game of like, oh my god, these people are attacking me, like, I need to attack them back, I need to replicate behavior. Or you could just accept the energy exchange that, you know what, I'm having a lot of emotion and a lot of energy directed at me one way. I can take it in and use it and make it very productive. And, you know, this is, this is what alchemy is. And this is even almost like a Sufi idea. That you can take something that is one way and make it into another way. So I can take these people's energy from them, and I can channel, channel it into my life, which is quite fantastic. Or I could fall into this mimetic game where someone said something. No, I have to say something back. Now, you know, well, they, they said, you know, I was accused of this, so now I have to try to deny the accusation. I could do that, but that what happens when people do that? They go crazy. I've, I've seen so many people online, whether they be celebrities or e-celebrities, or they develop some level of infamy, where they get this following, the attention, and then, then it devolves into chaos because everything starts to get to them. They start internalizing all of it, and Maybe they don't believe what the person's saying, but they have to somehow tell the person why they're wrong. The person doesn't care why you think that they're wrong. They have established their position already. You know, how you feel about me is not my responsibility. That's yours. You know, especially if you're not someone that you know I, I have responsibility towards, which is 99% of people. I don't have any responsibility towards the population at large. You're responsible for yourself, not for how others feel about you that way. So, you know, what does that summarize into? It's an I don't give a fuck attitude. Like, oh, this, these people are upset. I, I don't care. You, know, you, you can't make a person care. You know, which also, that, that by itself infuriates people. You know, and then you realize, like, most, most human interaction, all human interaction is driven by this fundamental belief, this principle, really, that the person is going to care that you're trying to get their attention. You know, and, and, and you see this, you know, in very, this, is, this, this is all human behavior. Yeah, this is you can't. This is how we learn. Human beings are mimetic. We learn by imitating others. That's what, that's what language is. How do we learn a language? You hear a sound, you copy the sound. So there's this. It's it's really it's scientific. I would say where it's it's never not the case. If someone waves to you, you're supposed to wave back. If someone says hi, it's rude if you don't you know, return the hello. That makes sense. Yeah, that, that's being polite. Well, online. Someone tells you to go fuck yourself and you're a piece of shit and you should die. Well, they have to respond to this. Like I, I said something to them. They're not respond. What? You, it, this is this is fascinating to me. When you don't respond to people, they get more upset, even though you even though you made them angry. So I made you furious. Now you're commenting. I'm not replying. And now you're more angry that I'm not replying. And this is what I call it the troll paradox. If you reply to the troll then what they said was true, because why else would you be replying? If you don't reply to the troll, then what they said must be true, because you're not replying. <laughs> it logically makes no sense, but that's how people operate. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've, you've kind of blocked off the, you know, caring about what the trolls think, but have you also blocked off the the positive response that you get? Like, obviously, you're speaking to me now, like two years ago, like I said, I'm, I'm stuck and I'm I'm reading your stuff and here I am now, two years later, I've got a lot more confidence and self-esteem. And, you know, yeah. I'm not going to say that you are the only cause of that, but you were a part of, mm-hmm. of that transformation. Now, does that make you feel good? Is there an ego response or is there a humbling feeling about it? Or is it so common now that it just doesn't impact you? Um, I suppose the point I'm trying to get across to other people listening is if you stop yourself from from the trolls uh, and and you're not going to put your stuff out there, you're also going to stop yourself from helping other people that need your help. So describe some of the feelings that you get from the uh, transformational stories that you get from people who who don't interact with you. Like you probably had no idea who I was for two years, but I'm there listening, uh, reading your stuff every day and it's helping me through. So how does it feel to be helping people who are silently suffering, but not letting you know that you're helping them? No, oh, it feels, it feels amazing. Um, yeah, I, I would not characterize myself as an altruistic person. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a believer of the, the mental mindset that, you know, one should make a show of doing good that way. We're like, look at me. I'm a good person. I'm helping people. Like, aren't I you know, so virtuous? Fundamentally, everyone does anything for what is partially selfish reasons. You, know, you wouldn't do something that feels bad repeatedly. I mean, maybe you would if you're addicted, but yeah, you know, we do think we do things. Even if we give out an act of charity, are you doing it for the person? Or are you doing it for yourself? It's both. You really, you can't really divide the two. Yeah. That should be acknowledged. But the majority of the interactions I've had online, I would say 95% of them are positive. Yeah, the one thing I've always done, which I think surprises people, you know, for those who do interact with me, is that I always make myself available. My, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I'm sure pulling back the mask. Like, I, very often I'll post on Twitter, like, oh, the DMs are, my DMs are open for an hour. My DMs are always open. <laughs> I've never closed them since I've been on Twitter. And everyone that's ever sent me a message needing help with anything, I've always replied back to. Yeah, maybe I, I mean, I've probably missed a few, like, but 99% of the time I, I've replied back. Same thing with emails. If someone sends me an email, I have a question, I'll answer the question. <laughs> uh, same thing on, you know, on Instagram. Every social media account I have, I've always been, made myself accessible for people. Um, yeah, I've I, I've seen this so often where people develop fame, you know, internet fame, social media fame, and they're very idolized. Like, oh, you know, it's it's this, oh wow, you're so incredible, you're inspiring, I follow you. I'm like that that that's great. Like, I'm glad I'm doing that for you. Um, but like you should be doing this for yourself. Like I, I don't like the I don't like idealization. You know, a lot of what I do, oftentimes, with even the way I use social media, is trying to break down sort of that deification image. Yeah, I, I don't want anyone to deify me. I, I don't want to be put on a pedestal. Like it's it's very it, it's very humbling when someone tells you that you've been like a mentor to me. Like that, that's great. Like I'm glad I'm able to do that for you. Yeah, but I want you to live your own life, you know, not in comparison to how you think I would approve of it, or needing my permission or I want to be like you. I want you to carve out your own definition of yourself, of who you're trying to become. And you know, if I influence you positively, positively in somebody to do that, like phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, but I, I don't want to be anyone's you know like personal savior. Yeah, that's why. I, I mean, that's why even you know I, I make fun of the uh, sort of that, that savior complex in general. I'm like, oh, it's, it's your Chad savior here. I'm like, on one level, like, is that true? Yes. On another level, I'm just making fun of that whole, you know, whatever you want to call it, internet idol complex. Because I find I find it very absurd. Um, but at the again at the same time though, like I have obviously tens of thousands of followers, and I know it's significant to people on some level. And like, and you have to appreciate that as well. 
something I raised personal training, you know, the first year I did it was that most adults still need parents and coaches. Um, you know, if there is a point in time where people, I don't want to say figure life out since you can always say like no one, no one figures life out. Like, okay, nobody figures life out. But if there's a point in time where people truly mature, it's not, it's, it, it is the point in time where you no longer need someone to direct you. And that sounds simple. Like, isn't that, that should be what being an adult is, right? You're autonomous, you're responsible, you have agency. You don't need anyone telling you what to do. You don't need anyone telling you good job. You don't need anyone's permission. Yeah, idealistically, that's true. Practically speaking, most adults still need that. All the clients I've ever worked with, they needed somebody to tell them a good job. They needed someone to hold them accountable. They needed someone to show them what to do. They needed some motivation, some self-esteem. Where they needed someone to so where do you think, uh, sorry to interrupt there, but where do you think yeah. that comes from? You know, why do people still need validation and, and permission? And you know, why are they reliant on, on this even in an adult age? Hmm. Human beings are social creatures. Um, we need communication. Like we need to talk to somebody. Some people need less. Some people need more. But no one exists as an island unto themselves. People get lonely. Um, so having any kind of human interaction, even if it's just you know small conversation like that, can be very meaningful for people. Uh, yeah, and, and most people who you know, the vast majority of people, they live their lives and. They don't necessarily have the certainty that they are living a life the right way. They have hesitations. They have areas that are unknown to them. They have parts of themselves they haven't explored. So it's very affirming when you encounter somebody who is strong in an area where you're weak. It is. It's like, okay, oh, wow, so, like, someone else can do it, so can I. What one man can do, so can another. Yeah, and for most people, the way, you know, the way they live their life at large, like, you, it's a process of embarking on a path, the others are also on. Inevitably, comparisons will be made. And you have to find a median point between being happy with yourself, but also using comparison to other people as a measuring stick for where you're progressing towards. You know, maybe you find that's not for you and you change to something else. But I don't know that you ever fully escape that. Um, is it impossible to? I mean, like, I mean, I should say, like, is it possible? It's possible, but it, it is very uncommon. You do, you do encounter people that way. We're like, wow, they, they really, they just don't need anyone to tell them anything. Like you do. And generally speaking, we, we do idolize those people to some extent. You know, like very generic, like, uh, like Michael Jordan, this hyper-driven athlete, champion, ultra-confidence. Jordan didn't need someone to tell him, you're doing a good job. He was winning. He was winning. You know, like, like, when you're racking up victories that way, you know you're doing the right thing. Um, so we, we really idolize that kind of mindset. But you know, how many people really achieve it? Not that many. Okay. Um, you know, conscious of the time, but I, I really want to touch upon, you know, your, your experience with ayahuasca. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's come, quite, quite a thing. But, I mean, the first time, I mean, I've never done, obviously, ayahuasca or drugs or anything like that. But the first time I really came across it was was uh, the book by Dr. Rick Strassman, you know, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, which was around about 10 yep, years yes. ago. Um, and I've always been fascinated by this idea of, for me, it wasn't about taking an external drug to have this kind of mystical experience. It was always, always about some kind of deep spiritual meditation and, 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 and growing yourself spiritually and then having that experience from a place of enlightenment uh, from, from that kind of area. But obviously people today are, are taking ayahuasca and, and, and having these experiences. So firstly, can you just talk to us about 
your experiences with ayahuasca and then we'll take the conversation from from there <laughs> yeah so i mean my experience so let me i'll preface as i like to do um probably disappointing to people since it was not spiritually enlightening but i was not <laughs> seeking enlightenment um like I, like I said, I, I'm, I'm very happy with my life. Like, I, I love my life. Like, there isn't anything I could point to where I have any discontentment with at all. Uh, and at the time I took ayahuasca two years ago, that was pretty much the same situation. Like, it was, life, life is wonderful. So I took ayahuasca this purely out of curiosity. Um, so I did a, a ceremony with a shaman. It was two nights. Um, and I didn't have any expectations on what would happen at all. I just was like, look, either I'm, I could, maybe I'll get super high, maybe I talk to spirits, maybe it's horrible. Like, let's just see. Like, I, I'm very much a believer that you should have, you should have as little to no expectations as possible from experiences. You know, whether you're traveling, or anything, just go to a place, meet people, anything. Don't set up a scenario, story in your mind of how it's going to go. Just keep that page blank. Keep it blank and let things unfold as they unfold according to their nature. So I did the ayahuasca ceremony, and the the first night was uh, more powerful than the second night. I think I probably needed more of the, the medicine, as they call it. But my experience was I was in a what I would call sort of like a holographic universe for about two hours with animal spirits riding around, um, talking to them. It's kind of like a Disney movie on LSD, on acid. And it was great. It was fucking great. I, I still remember it very distinctly. I was like riding the snake through, the, through this this universe. This, you know, and I was like saying hi to things. I'm like, hi bear. And I was like, hi Alexander. Every every and every all the animals I met said hi back. Like this was this was the experience. Like so, I, I met like you know, so I saw like a spirit bear. I'm like, hi bear. I was like, hi Alexander. Saw saw a rabbit. Hey, hi rabbit. Hi Alexander. Everything said hi. It was it was great. It's like being Doctor Doolittle. Um, and then yeah, and then I had like a come down from it. Um, you're like, what did that mean? I'm like, I don't think that meant anything. Like, I love animals. I'm, I'm an animal lover, so I like, I it was wonderful, best time ever. Now, when I <laughs> when I shared that with the group, that was very unlike everybody else's experience. So I was in a group of twelve people. Everyone else's answers to how their experience went was various degrees of pain, suffering. Living in being being within sort of a living nightmare, trauma, uh, repressed emotions, repressed memories, uh, very dark stuff. You know, I saw people throwing up. I saw people vomiting violently. I saw people crying. You know, people, you know, explosively defecating, having to rush to the bathroom, like having horrible sweats. You know, being in a state of just, you could tell it's this tortured state. Um, you know, now how do I make how do how do you make sense of that right like. How do, you, how do you even make that make sense? Did some of them tell you what what, what were some of the things that they actually saw to make them feel like that? Or did anybody disclose that? Or Oh, they did. They did. Um, but it, it's very much sort of like horror fiction. So, I, this, I mean, this is like taking like a big perspective now. Like, well, what, what, was you, what was your experience? Was it all in your head? I'm like, I don't believe it was all in my head. Like, I don't believe that for a second. Mm -hmm. The way I would frame this is that human reality, our perception of time is extremely finite and extremely limited. And we don't fully realize this until we have an extra sensorial experience. So even like our eyesight, we see a very narrow spectrum 
of the actual visual spectrum that exists. Our hearing is a very narrow spectrum of the actual auditory spectrum that exists. Um, you know, our sense of you know, our sense of taste, our sense of touch, sense of smell. We have these physical senses to navigate the world, but when you realize how limited our senses are to the entirety of what exists, it's it's probably. I mean, I don't think you can even calculate it down to like, oh, it's one percent. Like, it, it's it's a, it's a quantum. You know, most of the universe that exists exists beyond our ability to perceive it. You know, we can, I can see the horizon. So I can see about 40 miles, you know, down from my apartment view. That's not 1% of the Earth's circumference at all. Like, it, it, so the entire of the world exists, you know, it's, it's vastly bigger than this. Um, if you take sort of what's called like a Spinozan view of God, where, like, what, what is God? Is, is God a man? Is God, you know, a person in the sky? Like, no, it, God is all things that exist. And existence, reality, does follow very fundamental patterns of structure. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's axiomatic. We live in a physical world that has physical laws. It couldn't not have a structure otherwise. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. So if you can sort of accept those you know, points as being true, as being transcendentally true, then I don't think it is a... I want to say structure of the imagination. I don't think it's a preposterous extrapolation to believe that there may be realms of reality that are not normally accessible to us, but that we can access under an altered state. Altered state meaning what? Altered state meaning our brain is a consciousness engine. It has the ability to create patterns. Okay. We know, you know, this is, this is actually fairly well-established science at this point. We know that the universe, you know, one of the theories of the universe is the universe is that there is a structure of mind. So all things have an element of mind to them. All things have an element of consciousness. We know that certain forces exist only because they are observed to exist, and at that point they will exist. So depending upon our perspective of any given scenario, it will change the scenario itself. It's like, it's like the Schrodinger's cat. Is the cat dead? Is it alive? Is it not dead till you look at the cat? Like, it's a weird thing to think about. Okay. So, you know, taking that into account. So people have these experiences in ayahuasca. They're having these internal experiences where their brain has probably never been put into this altered biochemical state where it's able to produce these kinds of, um, you know, sort of like mental scenarios, you know, these kinds of experiential, you know, journeys. Is it not real? Like, well, how do you define real? Is real only what happens to you externally? Or something real because it happens in your head? This conversation we're having right now, you're watching me, I'm watching you. I'm saying what I'm saying, you're hearing it, I'm also hearing what I'm hearing. You're internalizing a certain experience. Is that not real? Because your experience is going to be based upon what? On your mind. The same way mine is. So I don't believe that you can discount something that because it happened in the mind, it is not a real experience. Something could be false compared to actual reality. It could. If you told me right now that you're a black guy, I, I'm not black, I'm Caucasian. Okay, like that, that's not real. You know, certainly like we, we can create false situations, but we can also create true situations. You know, this, because something is false doesn't this, you know, mean that does, that does not negate truth. Okay, so we can accept that mental experiences, experiences of the mind are real. So people take ayahuasca. They're in an altered state. Their mind is creating things that would normally be able to create. If you are a person where you have repressed emotions, you have repressed memories, you have 
things that are held back from your normal conscious memory and they exist in the subconscious. And especially if those things are painful and you try to avoid those things, I would guarantee your experience is not going to be pleasant. What is most real to you in your mind is whatever has the most emotional energy attached to it. If that's something that's painful, you're going to be led to that thing. If that's something that's happy, you're going to be led to that thing. Yeah, you know, what makes you know, I mean this is this is sort of like the aspect of emotion. Is emotion subjective? Is it relativistic? Like, no. How do we how do we define experiences for anything? By how we feel about them. If you have an amazing experience, so what made it amazing? Well, it, you know, this that I'm like, okay, what made it what made it feel amazing? It felt amazing because it literally was an internal mental physical sensation of it feeling amazing. You cannot remove mind from reality. You can't. You can't do it. There's no way to. So if in your mind, if in your subconscious, you have a collection of pain that you've never addressed, and then you take a drug that's going to put you into an altered state that will more or less seemingly target those sources of energy, whether it be positive or negative, now it's going to be brought to the forefront of consciousness. And now you're going to have to you know, be put through a gauntlet of enduring it. And you know that's why for the majority of people I talk to when they use psychedelics, especially ayahuasca, they have these very torturous experiences. But then what happens? You have a breakthrough of some kind where because you're living it, reliving it, you're going through these scenarios, you're able to actually inhabit that consciously for the first time. And then in the process of feeling it, you have some sort of emotional mental release, a release of the mind. And now, oh, wow, okay, like I, I'm over it. I'm over it. I've recovered from it. I've healed, you know, which, whichever terms you want to use. Um, you know, or for people where you have very common experiences that, like, they live in their head. Like, you know, they're taking, taking psych psychedelics makes them realize that the, the world is bigger than, you know, what they presume it to be. You know, like, oh, help me overcome my ego. I'm like, you can never overcome an ego. Your ego is just your conscious mind at large. What can happen for you, what can happen is that your definition of yourself and how you think the world exists, that can be expanded. And perhaps if you live life with a negative kind of ego that's very sensitive, that puts you in conflict with people, and then that gets expanded into a more accommodating ego that's stronger, it's based upon, let's just say, self-love versus self-loathing. You know, it's based upon being accepting versus being rejecting. That could really change your life. You know, it could. You know, this, is all, this is all 50 50s what-ifs. It could. Or you could take psychedelics and it's horrible for you. You never want to do it again. So, well, what I find interesting, but obviously, because like I, said, I only most of my information came from that book, and, and in that book of of, of trust, trust, and he, he basically said that all the people that had a positive experience were in mm -hmm. before obviously taking the DMT were in a positive state of mind. Their life was good. They were happy, and every single person that had the negative experience, they they were already full of stress and anxiety, um, and, and 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 you know all. all Basically, the experience that you have is solely dependent on your state of mind before you actually go into that experience. And, and why I found that so interesting was um, because on a completely separate topic, you know, one of my favorite philosophers is Lama Iqbal, and he says something like, you know, heaven and hell uh, are not localities, they are states of the mind. You know, hell is man's painful realization of his failure in life. So 
I suppose yes. I'm trying to get as you know, when you're getting to the point of, of death, you know, everybody thinks of hell as this fiery physical place where you're gonna get burnt, but that fire above the heart could actually be the the regret and the pain and the anxiety of not fulfilling your potential, of living a life of anxiety and not doing anything about it. In other words, not changing your state from the negative to the positive. You know, is 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 there some similarities between that experience and, and what I'm talking about there, or is that just two completely separate things? Oh no, I, I would I would say the that pretty close that, that more or less aligns with how I, I view that how I view reality now. Um, it's it's a very sort of I don't know it's it's a very fundamentalist sort of view of theology that heaven is a, a place and hell is a place or purgatory is a place but when you when I, that, that's one thing that I realize when I'm taking ayahuasca is that all these levels of reality all these layers they all exist on top of each other at all times so you can separate them by way of perception but they exist as a wholeness you can walk down the street somewhere and see someone that's a drug addict or homeless and they're, they're living in hell they're already in hell like hell is real hell is 100% real for them it's not real for you but it's real for them um, you know, if your life is hell that way, where the strongest part, if, if your life is hell where the most deeply held aspects of yourself are existing in that state of hell, state of purgatory, that's where you'll be when you take DMT, where you take psychedelics. Um, if it's not, though, then, you know, you could, like, you know, like, like uh, the book said, it could be a wonderful experience. Um, but no, like the idea of localities, we arrange things very geographically. We tend to think about even philosophical concepts very geographically because that's how you know, that's how the geographical world works. You go north, you go south, there's location. Well, that must be how everything else works. And like, the universe is not that separate. It's not. You know, especially the ties that bind. And yeah, I mean, I could go on talking to you all day, but let's you know, try and wrap this up. At the moment, you're, you're, you're in Thailand and you're training with Saga, who... Uh, no. Who basically is is the real figure of who the Street Fighter character was based? Is that correct? Is, is that who the Street yeah. Fighter? Yeah. So just talk to us a little bit about Saga and, and what you're doing, and, and then we'll wrap up by you know a bit more how people. Can yeah. So let's just talk about Saga um, first. Oh yeah, yeah. So so Sagat. So, um, <laughs> so it, it was a dream of mine when I was when I was in college. So dance wasn't working out. The appeal of having to go work was unappealing. Um, I, it was like a dream where I was like, man, I'd love to go to Thailand and just train and do Muay Thai. I, there's only two things I've ever loved doing physically. I love dancing. I love fighting. Those are the two things in life where I will work hard at every single day, and I love it, I enjoy it, and I'll get up early for it. And just, I love doing it. Um, and no, and no, there's no excuses made at all of any kind that come up. I can't, I can't wait. Every day I can't wait. So at the time I was in college, I'm like, this dancing isn't working out. I'm like, man, I'd, I'd love to fight somehow, I'm like, imagine, and I was going to a Muay Thai gym at the time, I was training, I'm like, it'd be so cool to go to Thailand, like, yeah, like, it was very, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a clarified idea, but it existed as an idea, but that costs money, right, like, I didn't have any money, I do, like, how do you fly to Thailand, where'd I live, like, what'd I do, like, there's, yeah, it wasn't a possibility then, as I got older, and, like, built the business, with the career, training and then I got to the point where I'm like well I have the income I have the freedom now I'm like I can do whatever I want I can go to Thailand <laughs> so so I'm in Thailand um, and when I got here like I had I have to acknowledge some realities I'm not 21 I'm 31 so throwing myself into something physically with no thought given to it I'm like 
Yeah, I've had, there's. I'm like I said, I haven't gotten older where I feel old, but I've had a lot of injuries. Like I don't want to go crazy in regards. To, okay, I'm gonna train six days a week, two hours, you know, four hours a day. I'm like, I want to do something wrong, and I get hurt the first month, and I'm pissed at myself. I'm like, I, I want. To, I'm gonna do this a little bit differently. I'm like, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna work smarter instead of harder. I'm going to work smart so I can work hard. So I'm going to maximize my efficiency and my skill with what I'm doing so I can do it at a greater volume. You know, one of the, the hallmarks of like a fighter when he's on the decline, this is like in professional sports MA, you often hear guys say like, oh, I'm not, I'm not working, it's not about working hard, it's about working smart. As soon as you start hearing someone say that, they're probably going to retire soon because their body can't hold up. I didn't want to be in that position where I'm going to work hard. Oh, wait, no, I can't work hard. I'm like, no, I'm going to work smart so I can work hard. I'm going to do both. So how would I go about doing that? So I had to kind of reverse engineer this process. I'm like, what's the hardest things to do in fighting? It's not it's not the running. It's not the push-ups. It's not, it's not doing conditioning. Like the, that the kind of physical stuff is very simple and basic. I mean, I can tell you right now, okay, I, I want you to start running you know, a mile a day or you know, one kilometer. Start with one kilometer, and then we'll slowly build up to doing six kilometers. That, that's easy to do. The challenging part is the actual skill work. It's learning how to punch, learning how to kick, learning footwork. You know, it's learning the actual art itself. It's not, it's not the conditioning. The conditioning, the physical stuff, that's just exercise. I know how to do that. It's the skill. I'm like, okay, if I want to improve my ability to train this, I need to increase the actual skill of fighting itself. How can I do that? Well, the best way to accelerate the learning curve of anything is to get a teacher, of course, right? But yeah, again, very axiomatic. All right, who is the best possible teacher I could find? that I could get to train me every single day to get better as quickly as possible geometric wave improvement. You know, who is that guy? So I started doing research. And you know, I, there's lots of there's obviously lots of great fighters, lots of great champions. Um, but the one person that I found who seemed to, not unanimously, but seemed to have the broadest consensus of being like the guy where it's like there's no one like this in Thailand, like the best one-on-one you'll ever have, um, it was Sagat. And, you know, so the guy looked him up, I'm like, oh, this is, okay, this is a guy from, from Street Fighter. Um, you know, so he was, you know, he's considered, like, a, you know, the inspiration for the, the character, you know, partially. Um, but he, he taught, so he teaches one-on-one -one lessons. So I found him in, this was, what, May? So I found him in May, I'm like, hey, like, so we met, I'm like, and he, he does lots of private lessons, but he, he's never had anyone hire him for more than, like, let's say, maybe, like, two days max, a week at most. But I found him. I got put into contact with him by a former surf student of his that trained him a few times. I'm like, so, like, I want you to train me like every day. He's like, oh, like for you know, for just for like a, like a week. I'm like, no, I want you to train me every day for like a year. Huh. Okay. Which, which is yeah, like he, like I don't to, to my knowledge, I don't think anyone has ever actually done this in the history of the sport. And I say that not out of ego, but I, I don't think anyone's ever actually done this. You know, most people, the way they learn MMA, Muay Thai, boxing, like, you go to the gym, you show up, maybe you get some one-on-one -on -one time with the coach. I don't know that anyone's ever hired like a master level fight coach, trained them every day one-on-one, -on -one, and like, I don't know if it's ever been done, honestly, I could not, at least in modern history. But that's what I told him I wanted to do. So he, you know, he's like, wow, okay. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard, right? Um, so it's now, we're in what? So it was like, this is right around the middle of May. There was like a, there was there was like a week off in between where I got sick one week with food poisoning, but so it's been yeah so in May so like June July August September so it's going on like four 
yeah, a little over four months now. Um, yeah, and the rate of improvement has been massive. Uh, I mean, just like I've 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 documented the process, but I've I've gotten measurably better every single day since we started. Every single day. Um, yeah, like and there's other you know there's other fighters around, there's other trainers in the gym, and like everyone that sees me now, you know, at least you know it's where we train at, they're like, how long how long you been training? It's like uh, four months. They're like. You look. You look like you've been fighting professionally. Like you. Like you're. Pro, like you look like you. Like you have like ten fights. Like you. Like you never. You haven't even had a fight yet. Like what the hell? Yeah. I'm like in. Like I. It's that's that's what training does for you. Um. Yeah. And personal training's the same way. If you want. If you want to get in the best shape of your life, what would you do? Get someone to train you every day for the next six months. Like I. I guarantee you, you'll be in phenomenal shape. I. I've seen. I've seen so many individuals in the fitness industry be transformed by working with a coach that way. That. Like, why not apply to something else? So that's what I'm doing now in Thailand. Um, I got, I got, I have a long-term visa. So, as you know, like it's it's a five-year visa. So I'll be here for a while. And the plan is, hopefully, I think by the, I think by the end of the year. I, I told Sagat, like, tell me when you think I'm ready. So and he's targeting like end of the year or in November, December. Like that'll be the first you know, professional fight. So Brilliant. that's what's happening. Excellent. So best of luck with that, and um, well, we're all following the journey anyway. So. Um, we'll be looking forward to that now. Let's just wrap up. So um, yep. obviously you, you've got a platform now on Twitter, the email list. Um, so just talk to us a little bit about who your ideal client is, um, what your mission is, and, and what are you looking to do with this platform that you've now got in terms of helping other men? <clears throat> yeah, so I mean, ideal, ideal client, ideal follower. Any man that's between the ages of 18 to 45, 50, if you're looking to improve your physical health, Improve your physical health, improve your mental performance, your overall self-confidence. Like, yeah, like follow me. Like, I guarantee you, I can help you. Um, you know, in regards to like, you know, where is it going? I'm trying to build a community now of men. You know, which you're, you're part of the group where I, I want to legitimately empower a group of men where they have the physical, mental base to really custom design their life as a whole. And everyone's going to have a slightly different definition of that. But, but the world needs more men like that, where they are leaders, maybe not of men, but leaders of themselves. You know, not, not every man is destined to be a king, but every man can lead his own life. And the more men we have like that, generally the more, I would say, this overall prosperity we're going to have. People always look to strong men for guidance that way. So that's the mission. Um, you know, that's sort of like the, the ideal man. And, you know, I mean, it's growing. And obviously, I think, hopefully most of the people listening to this know where to find me, but Twitter, Instagram, the newsletter. And if, you are, if you're serious and you want a community where you can reinforce yourself, join the group. Or join the inner circle. Okay, brilliant. And, and you know, I will drop the links below this video. And like I said, you know, I've been following Alex's you know email newsletter, which is completely free, which is ridiculous for the value you get. But um, like I said, that has been a massive help in, in my journey. And then he's got um, you know fitness programs that are specific for your type. You not, they're not generic fitness programs. Like you know, for me, I am a skinny person, and there is a it's it's literally for me. You know, skinny program for, for people in my position but then obviously there's programs for people who uh, want to lose weight but they're not just fitness programs they are philosophical mental programms um as well so they're, I, pretty, they're I, pretty detailed <laughs> highly highly recommend them and obviously the, the community is great as well so like i said i will drop the links below um and alex thank you for being here i really appreciate the time um, and any final words for for people out there maybe who are stuck uh, and just some last words of encouragement before we sign off 
Yeah, I mean, last word of encouragement. I, I would tell anyone, you can change your life in any given day. It always starts with one action, like a, as all things start. It, just, it starts with doing one thing, one time, and repeating it. You know, if you can do that, then your future will be different from your current present. Brilliant. Love it. Excellent. Once again, thank you, Alex. And no problem, brother. Good talking to you. Best of luck with your uh, fighting career. And like I said, we will be following on. Um, yeah, I'll see you inside. Yeah, brilliant. Anyway, everybody else, take care. And I will see you on the next episode. Take care now. Bye-bye. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot if you would please rate and write a review. Please also subscribe so you get notified anytime a new episode drops. Thank you for tuning in. Now go out and attack your Minotaur.